The FM Evolution Podcast is brought to you by CGP Maintenance and Construction Services. We'll ensure consistently great performance to help keep your business running smoothly. For more information, visit cgpconstruction.com. So when we look at time, you've got to be in understand that when you've lost time as well in a production department or a facilities department, it's gone forever. So what you do, you have to spend more time, if you're in production, you have to spend more time making that tonnage that you missed. This is the FM Evolution Podcast, brought to you by CGP Maintenance and Construction Services, bringing you trends, innovations, and advancement of the facility management universe. Welcome to the Evolution. Here's Sean Black. What's up, guys? It's Sean Black at FM Evolution. Welcome back to another show. We are always looking at different facets of FM and relearning and jumping into these topics and getting more detail. And today I'm excited because we get to uh, hop across the pond and go international. We're talking to Andy Gailey at Uptime. And uh, I'm excited because Andy is, well, he's a wealth of knowledge. Um, He was really cool to have on the show. had so much information to share. Um, He's a mechanical production engineer by trade. And and, uh, with over uh, four decades of experience in aerospace, automotive, uh, utilities, food sectors, um, and the, he really is great because he connects with people and process and helps them figure out strategy that's needed in order to sustain reliability um, in FM. Now, you know, he focuses on the mechanical side of things, but it really it's about people and process. And uh, he brings those two together. Uh, and so it was really cool to hear, uh, you know, with his experience and his take on uh, the developing strategy that's going to be win for FMs around the country. So check this out. You don't want to miss this. But before that, here's a word from our sponsors. Did you know that CGP Maintenance and Construction Services are also commercial plumbers? They added the plumbing division in 2000 and have been serving the nation's largest brands ever since. They offer everything from cleaning drains, camera work, and grease trap repairs to full repipes and dig ups. So when your brand needs commercial plumbing, remember to call CGP. They are ready to be on site 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They specialize in restaurants, retail stores, commercial buildings, and hospitality. No matter what your plumbing needs may be, CGP is ready. And because they are a maintenance company, they can make the repairs needed after the plumbing is completed as well. One call will do it all. Call them today at 858-454-7326 or check them out on the web at www.cgpconstruction.com. Give them a call today. What's up, guys? It's Sean Black, FM Evolution. I am your host. And uh, gosh, today I'm excited because we have a guest from across the pond. Today, we're going to be talking with Andy uh, Galley. I said that right again. Gailey. <laughs> Gailey. Gailey. <laughs> there we go. I got, I'm going to get this right. Uh, at Uptime Consultants LTD and uh, Uptime. So they focus on reliability in all things FM, which is really cool. I'm excited to jump into this because uh, this is a big topic across the board for FM. And uh, I'm excited to learn more about Uptime and, and how they serve the FM community. Andy, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks very much. It's good to be here, Sean. Thank you. I'm so glad you I am having more and more international guests, and I'm so excited to be able to have you on. Where are you at today? This is my home office, as you can see, with uh, all the stuff behind me. Uh, I actually do most of my work from home anyway. 
and then occasionally go and see clients. So uh, I'm I'm based in Coventry, which is uh, if you have a look at the map of the UK and put your finger right in the middle of England, that's where we're at. So we're famous for uh, being the home of Jaguar cars and Land Rover, uh, and we have a, a rich automotive history background. Yes. Um, so yeah, we're kind of an industrial city still, but with a couple of universities attached. So that's awesome, where we're from. Well, welcome. Thank you for joining us. I'm always excited to have guests on with with as much information and experience as you do to have to share. Um, as a way of kind of getting us started, if you could tell us about you and, and, and uptime for those who don't know. Okay, yeah. Well, I started in engineering when I was 16. I did a, a formal apprenticeship in mechanical and production engineering. And uh, by the time I was 20, I was a time-served engineer, and I worked in manufacturing mainly prototype uh, in the turbine industry, mainly prototype transmissions and axles and things of that sort, jet casings, stuff like that. And then I I stayed in manufacturing in what I'd call the metal removal industry right through to when I was around 30. Uh, And I was looking for a change. I was working for a motorsport company, and um, it was really interesting work, but not very well paid. So uh, we had, you know, you were working on cars at Wun Le Mans and things like that. Um, but I was looking for a way out of the, the traditional automotive uh, turbine sector that was prevalent in the city. So I answered an advert, uh, which was kind of very obtuse and blank, just said, uh, Tom served engineers required for a challenge. And after a couple of months going through a process, I ended up working for PepsiCo International. PepsiCo International were, were building the first Dorito plant in the, in the UK, in fact, in Europe. And it was all under wraps in the mid-90s, this was. Um, and for the first year, we uh, were commissioning and installing the first Dorito line into the UK. And then we had multiple other snack lines attached to that. And what happened was over the years, I was transferred my skills into being a maintenance engineer, really, from being a production engineer. Uh, but I was, I've always still had the production engineer's brain. I I don't like things that break. I hate things that when they break. And I want to understand why that happened and get to the root cause and try and find out a remedy for that as an engineer. Uh, I was lucky that in mid-2000, 2006, the engineering operations manager at the time said, we want to change the way we work. We want to become less reactive. We want to uh, bring in condition monitoring and look at our lubrication strategy. Andy, go and do it. Um, PepsiCo is a really good place to do that because they they are a company that lets you fail fast. So you can try things out. And we got to a place after about six months where I thought we had a strategy in place. And if we went forward to that and then uh, modified it over time, we could drive down the reactive work. And that's what basically what happened. So over the next nine years, I did that. And then in 2015, myself and my partner, who also worked in the same factory, we got the opportunity to leave with a um, with a payment as well. So we, we left under a redundancy program. Um, and I'd always thought about starting my own reliability consultancy. So um, when I was working in that environment, I always, I never liked the, uh, one of the measures they used to do was, was downtime. They always used to talk about downtime, downtime, downtime. And I always used to try and turn the conversation around into we should be accentuating the positive 
and talking about the uptime. So hence the name Uptime Consultant. Um, so it still is myself and my partner that run the business. Um, we I collaborate with lots of other people in other um, reliability spheres across uh, the Atlantic in Canada and US. Also in the UK, there's a there's kind of a, a community of reliability engineers. We help each other out. Um, so if I need things like lubrication, I have a collaborator I can call upon. And we've been doing this for six years now, so it looks like it works. It certainly does. And I love hearing about entrepreneurs and the stories of how you get started and really what a success story for you guys to work in your genius, work in what, you're, what you love to do and a positive uh, spin on that. And you're right. There is a focus on downtime and, and I know everyone's avoiding <laughs> downtime. And so I love that you guys named your company Uptime because that's really what it's about, right? It's yeah. all about the people yeah. and, and, and people on FM and, and everyone working to keep things running. Well, Andy, it's a bit of a tradition. I don't know if you know this, but we, we talk about uh, leadership a lot and leaders are readers and we love adding to that list of books that we have. And uh, so I would love to know what you guys are reading right now. Yeah, well, uh, I'm an avid book reader and um, I tend to always read factual books. I'm mm-hmm. a, it must be the engineering background. I always like to read things that, things that have a story and things that are real. Um, and I'm very, so I don't really read a lot of novels, but at the moment I do break it up every now and then I'll pick up a book and I think, well, I'm going to read this because it's a, it takes me away from the usual kind of, um, yeah. you know, factual stuff. So I'm actually reading, uh, I bought this about a year ago. I'm reading, uh, the plague by Albert Camus and, uh, I actually bought, bought it because of COVID. Um, and, um, at the time when COVID was breaking out, I, I looked into some classic books and I found The Plague and I'm about a quarter of the way through it. And it is really, it's interesting that some of the things that he's talking about, it was written in 1947, uh, some of the things he's talking about in this fictional story of the plague breaking out somewhere in northern uh, um, Africa, that the same themes, um, things about people disbelieving, people not understanding some of the science behind the plague, as it was. Um, so yeah, it's it's amazing that the he is actually writing that, you know, just after World War II. Um, and uh yeah, it is it's kind of it's good to reflect on that. I'm glad I probably didn't read it when say a year ago, because I think we were too deep into it. Yeah, but it's good to kind of read it now. I've um, heard of this book and yeah. um I've had one some more of my other uh um guests some someone had brought this up and uh it was interesting because you're right. the The way things lay out in that book is so scary. The way yeah. things really kind of unfolded, and it's almost yeah. like a playbook. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and and he's actually turned me on to his work now. So I'd heard of Albert Camus before, French writer, uh, and he had he he was involved in with the uh, the resistance movement in France during the Second World War. I think that's where I first heard about him. Um, but he he was interested in that he actually. He um, studied philosophy um, and only then became a playwright and then a writer. Um, so I'm going to search out this, obviously, his first book I've read by him. Definitely going to search out some other of his books. So it seemed very interesting. Yeah, a great add to the list. I'm yeah. going to have to pick it up. 
more than one recommendation for that book. So I'm going to have to read it now. I think it's going to be super, you know, even though it was written back, what, like you said, 1947. It's so so important to kind of get that information out and and see how it uh, corresponds with today. Yeah, it's amazing how you look to the human condition and there's definitely, you know, you go, wow, that's the same as now. Uh, You know, the the, uh, just the things that are going on in it. Uh, yeah. You could relate to it. So, yeah. People are people, man. I'm telling you. Yeah. It's so relevant. I love that. Okay. So, today we have uptime here because we're going to be talking about reliability, which is yeah. is your thing. You know, I love this. Uh, how people kind of really specialize and zone into their 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 genius and what they do. And so, um, before we get started, I want to kind of see if you can give us some idea of why you kind of focus in on this as your career and, you know, and really uh, trying to help facilities mitigate risk. You can tell us a little bit about how you decided to go down on this path. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I think if you talk to a lot of people in maintenance reliability, um, we all fall into it. We all, uh, there's not many people actually set out to become a reliability and a maintenance leader. Uh, What happens is we go through a certain process and we end up, by accident doing it. And it was uh, it was because it had a maintenance review in the factory that I worked in. And uh, um, the operations and engineering manager both approached me and said, well, we think we think you'd be a good fit for this. Go out and find out what will, what will work. And we see you, one of the things they said was, we see you, I never thought about this, we see you as a completer finisher. Once you start something, you're quite tenacious mm-hmm. and you'll do it until you get to the right outcome. Um, and so, yeah, that's how it started. It was, it was purely by chance that there was a change in the operation that we, we were going to operate. And then um, after me going and reaching out to certain people outside of the business and trying to find out what, what was the best way to do um, root cause analysis, what, what, what does FAMICA even mean? I didn't know what uh, failure modes effects causation analysis was. Um, what I found, I found, um, um, a methodology called RCM, Reliability Centered Maintenance, and I actually, I actually dove into that sphere and um, thought, well, this is about doing things differently. So, uh, yeah, I ended up by accident, but I ended up finding an, a niche that I, I kind of can use my production engineering skills and my background in how to engineer or re-engineer things, and it fits in with making things. Um, I won't say more reliable because we'll come on to that probably later, but it makes things work better than you or as, or as well as you would expect them to work for that way. Yeah. So. That. And, you know, I, I don't think it was by chance. <laughs> I don't think yeah. anything going to happen by chance. I love that. But the, but that is how most people in an FM and in different you know, parts of their career, uh, they kind of find themselves falling into something yeah. It just happens to be exactly what you should be doing. You'll find it. You'll find it with a lot of ex PepsiCo people that um, that you when you ask them about their history, if they've been there ten or fifteen, I was there twenty one years. That um, they describe being in one place and ending up go, going through and find themselves a completely different place um, because they do they do tend to want to. They, it's good they want to tend to challenge you and to move on up. You know yeah. so. Uh, uh, and it, it happens more in the, probably the middle management level. Didn't really affect me. I was a I was an engineering technician that still held an engineering technician's role, but as a specialist. 
So uh, it was quite a flat system. So my my um, I suppose all of my colleagues were still in a technician sphere. So I talked. We talked across to each other rather than up and down to each other, which is which is key. You need to do that. You can't be having a reliability manager or expert that is way away from where the operation's taking place. Yeah, I have some questions about that. We're gonna. That's a great lead into what we have coming up here. So, I mean, okay, so keeping things running in general, equipment, assets, uh, NFM uh, is a big part of any organization. Um, where does where does the facility manager start in this process? It's, it's, it's a big undertaking. Yeah, um, I think I'll probably go back to just what, what I just said. So the, the, the key thing for me uh, and what I would share with other people is, is make friends. Yeah, mm-hmm. So uh, all... Every, Every good outcome you'll find in reliability or engineering comes from a collaborative approach. It doesn't come from people demanding things. So well, I would say if you're in the facilities management kind of sphere, make sure that operations understand that you provide a service that they need, that you're a service provider, yeah. that you're not just an additional cost, and also make you know make friends of, people like the engineering department and the maintenance department that can make a massive difference to the way your facilities um, operate. So uh, too often I say when I go into organisations that we talk about things and then I'll ask about um, the compressed air or the or the uh, effluent plant or or others are, other areas you would see as facilities and you often find there's a bit of a divide, there's a bit of a, a silo mm-hmm. where maintenance say, well, why, ask, why are you asking about that? I say, well, without compressed air, you're not going to make anything. So you may, you've got to make sure that things that, that drive your plant and drive your machinery are probably the, one of the highest, highly uh, critical areas. So, you know, if, you, if, you're, if your steam system's not working properly and it's not efficient and if your compressed air's not working and can keep enough head, then you you know you're on you're on a bad path. Um, so the main thing is make friends and collaborate. Um, I think that's perfect because you know I had someone on uh, a couple of guests ago and uh, from from your area from Scotland. Yeah, uh, and uh, he was amazing. He one of the things he said was that FM is about people. And, um, you know, and I love that because it's so true. And what you're talking about, this is this collaboration and really working with others in FM is going to help, you know, to connect them with the right people and form the right strategy. And actually, I wanted to ask you about this. And I know because I know this is one of the things that you are great at is I wonder if you could talk to us about how strategy really plays a role uh, in facility management when it comes to. Uh, you know, it's just sustainable reliability. Um, and, and how does uptime, how do you guys help FM form strategy for this? Okay. Yeah. So um, without a plan, everything's just a wish. So that's the main, one main thing. So not just facilities management, but anything. So, you know, if you're on a, a football field or, um, you know, you're, you're playing a game or you, you've got a, an end goal in mind without that plan, without that strategy, you are just uh, you, 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 you are rudderless. You know, you're a wash. So um, it's very important to to actually think about it from a macro level in your plant, in your facility, 
and then but also right the way down to the component in an asset uh, and how critical that is to your organization so the 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 tool that I use and it's uh, it's one again that I had I spent some time with my time at PepsiCo developing this tool um and then I've formulated my own version of it is a criticality um tool which which basically goes and looks at all of your asset group um uh, from a hierarchy so you know if you've got a compressor um you look at it from that compressed air point of view and then you've got your um your 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 children of assets as well and you go down to well right down to component level right down to the what type of bearing is it and what lubrication regime does it want so uh, from from a macro level what you need to do is is to see where you are so you need to take a a, a, a stand back if you can stand back and have a look uh, it's very hard for people and I go again I go into plants and they're so um looking at the micro stuff that's going on day to day that they never have the opportunity to stand back and take in what the big picture is and where they want to mm. be in 12 months, three years and five years. And I would actually go and say that you, you, you that I, I, I sell my services really as a facilitator to go and to get that eyeball, that third po- uh, point of view on where they are, where they think they are and where they actually are and where they'd want to be. And then you can come up with a plan to get them from their current position into a better position. Um, so yeah, criticality um, where you look at risk and consequences of failures, and then you uh, put those in a hierarchy of, of uh, you know, not critical at all, and we can run to failure on that type of equipment to stuff that we need to look at maybe every day or every week. Um, be light on PMs. People put too many PMs in and they fail to carry them out. So then you've got to say, well, if you've got, uh, say you've got an 80% hit rate on your PMs and you're always missing 20%, those 20% never added any value whatsoever. So one of the things that criticality will highlight straight away is that you're probably over uh, overdoing the preventive maintenance, which tends to build up over time in tranches of work where, People come in and they say, well, we need to do this now. We need to do this now. And you end up with you know, hundreds or thousands of work orders that uh, are not relevant to any um, failure mode in the equipment. I love that. And I think you're right. Some engineers and some FMs uh, and the people in this industry do get really focused. Uh, and, and sometimes they really do need help seeing a, the bigger picture of what's going on. Uh, because you're right, you're going to get, if you're not prioritizing, you're not planning, and you're not doing those things, like you can, you can really get off track uh, you know, and do all kinds of work that you really don't have to do. Um, and so I love that. It's a great strategy. Uh, and, you know, and bringing that to FM, I think, is important uh, for people really kind of to remember that. Take, take a moment, take, a, take an overview of what's going on. When it comes to really sustaining these type of efforts though what kind of advice do you give fms you know working their facilities to keep things up and running in this type of strategy yeah well uh, you you have to you have to be truthful with people you have to say to them that this is it's not um it's not going to be a quick fix it's going to be it's going to be a journey and you are going to have setbacks so uh, the sustaining bit that comes at the end is probably the hardest bit to do because once mm. you've done all the good work 
once you start going through some months of having less than one or two percent unplanned downtime, uh, somebody will come out of the accounting department and say, "Well, why do we need this?" <laughs> Yes, this predictive maintenance department, this reliability department, because they haven't seen the journey. And the one that I was involved in, in that snack food plant, that took about five or six years. We we were in a really uh, um, reactive uh, phase. And it uh, and the work that went into the first 18 months, we saw no, hardly any benefits at all. We invested heavily on changing the way people worked, the way people thought, and took out these planned preventative works that would not add in value. So there was a transition period where you, you're waiting for some payback. It's, in, it's, it's important to try and get some big wins in that early period. Um, and then when it comes to sustaining, you must be uh, doing some work on revisiting. So once you've got to a point where your target is met, you must then go and put a you know, uh, a, a line in the sand and say, right, in six months' time, we're going to go back, we're going to get the criticality study out, mm. and we're going to get out the historical value out of the CMMS, and we're going to say, did this tool work for what we're doing now? And you'll also find that, uh, especially in plants that, that I worked in, they, we, we changed so often. We had new platforms coming in every year. You'd have new assets coming in. you have old assets going out. And your profile of your plant would change over that period, so you'd need to go and revisit it. So the, the sustaining bit is 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 as important to get as getting to your goal, and it's one of the hardest things to do. Yeah, I agree, and I think people just eh, they kind of get lax of days ago. They think everything's going fine, and we don't need that reliability, you know, strategy. Everything's good. Yeah. Surprise! <laughs> yeah. really I've, I've seen that. I've, I've seen uh, I've seen things come full circle. So I've seen that that play out where it's become um, so every day that you have this amazing. People don't understand that what you've experienced is, is amazing throughputs, and then they start powering back on things, and you get a grace period. You'll get six or nine months, and then um, you know everything will fall around your ears. And I, I yeah, I, I, I had that experience where, you know, I had people on the phone to me saying, what, what, what have we done? What happened? What happened? Well, yeah, we did. <laughs> you didn't, you didn't, yeah, you didn't continue didn't, on. <laughs> didn't carry on with the journey. That's it. All right, Andy. So we're going to stop. We're going to pause for a break real quick to thank our sponsors here. And we'll be right back. CGP Maintenance and Construction Services Incorporated is not just a general contractor. They build, service, and maintain facilities while self-performing for some of the largest brands in the nation. With over 33 years in business, they've got what it takes to be the partner you deserve in today's fast-paced facility management marketplace. Welcome back to the show. I am Sean Black, and this is FM Evolution. And we're here with Andy at Uptime talking about reliability and facility man, uh, management and, and how uptime and, and other management consultants can really help mitigate risk and increase reliability in FM. And um, Andy, you've done so much in this field and you have some great articles out there. I, and I was reading one uh, called The Maintenance Investment Conundrum. That was a great article. Uh, something caught my eye in there and uh, kind of caught my attention was when you talked about the alignment of maintenance and operations. And uh, for us 
here, I mean, this is pretty universal, I feel. This is a big deal, getting operations and maintenance to work together instead of doing this all the time. Yep. Um, I wondered if you could kind of talk about uh, that kind of partnership and, and how you, you guys deal with it. Yeah, um, it goes back to the story again at, at PepsiCo in that snack food plant. And um, leading up to that time where I was asked to go into a predictive, go look at condition monitoring, go look at uh, lubrication, the whole, the whole engineering group got together. Um, when we had days off site, we would get together for a whole day and we would look at where we were. So we take that sense check of this was no good. You know, double yeah. figures of double figures of unplanned downtime is not good in percentage terms. So we would then actually extrapolate that and see what opportunities were there and uh, put a dollar amount on them as well. So we knew where the where the major opportunities lay. And during that process, we uh, which was unusual for us. We were had the engineering manager there, the maintenance manager, and the whole technician crew. Um, and we had some key operators as well that were kind of. Um, we we were bringing them up to be be technicians, and the operations manager turns up. So we said, "Oh, this is interesting." And the operations manager and the engineering manager got up together, and they said, "We we we are this has this has been a problem. We know in the past that there's been this disconnect where operations ask for availability, mm-hmm. and when it's not when it's not made available to maintenance, they can't do their job. Then operations complain that it's not available because it didn't come up." And there's this continuous fight of who's right. Yep. And nobody's right. It's just what was happening. So they said, we've decided from here on in, operations and maintenance and engineering are one entity. So we're going to be partners in this. And they were so they were so keyed into this. They said, we, this is how committed we are. The operations manager and the engineering manager swapped roles. So they, were seconded, wow. they seconded each other for a year which again is not unusual in PepsiCo. You'll find people go off and work in logistics for a year and then come back and they'll go and work in R&D for a year and come back. So they said, what we're going to do is the operations manager is going to become the engineering manager and the engineering manager is going to become ops. And what we're going to do in those roles is we're going to learn what each other requires from each other as a customer. We're going to have a customer-client relationship. And when we return, we've got to keep each other's sphere clean but when we return, we know we're returning. So we can't do the dirty on each other. And it works so well because now all of a sudden, operations and engineering maintenance worked as partners and worked out the best way to turn around a plant. And we ended up, when we, when we added the predictive tasks that I was doing as well and took out the planned tasks, so we took out you know hundreds of hours of planned tasks that we thought we needed to do, we ended up, making our turnarounds like a day quicker. So, we, you know, that means you've got a day more production. Mm. That means the operation managers are a lot happier. That means that the whole logistics chain to your end client, which is the supermarket, are getting their things on shelves and not having to have excuses about why it didn't happen. So, again, uh, we talk about these things as if they're kind of very dry subjects, but they're not. They're people-driven, and it's, it's the people that make things happen. And I was lucky to be in a team where uh, we had engineering, maintenance and operations come together as a team and say, this is our common goal. Our common goal is uptime and tonnage. That's what we want to do. And we want to drive that. And, you know, and, and over, we knew it was going to be over a year, two, three years. Um, That's brilliant. What a brilliant idea. I don't know how many times I wished 
that someone yeah. else was in my position and understood what I had to go through. Every, and everybody, everybody I explain it to goes, wow, how did that happen? And this is the thing. You need, you need to have the wherewithal and the leaders to say, this is what we're going to do. And there was a consensus as well. I must admit, in those meetings with the technician group, we said, yeah, okay, let's do this. Let's, let's do something different because what we're doing at the moment is not working. So we need to do something different. Um, you anyway, literally walked in the other man's shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it was not an unusual thing. It was not an unusual thing to find an operations manager in PepsiCo become a logistics uh, manager in a, um, in a logistics area or for a logistics manager to become an engineering manager. It wasn't unusual. It was actually the, the people who do very well in the PepsiCo world are people that will move through uh, logistics, engineering, maintenance, operations, um, maybe even health and safety, and will go through the whole career path over probably five or 10 years to become, say, a leader of a site. It's brilliant. It is yeah. absolutely brilliant to really give you a true understanding of what those people and those positions go through. I love yeah. it. That's a great idea. You also mentioned what you call three resource constraints time, money, and labor. And I, I wonder if you can kind of expand on these and how they work together in facility management. Yeah, well, um, if we go into real life, these things are constraints in real life as well. So uh, I'm probably about two-thirds of the way through my major constraint, which is my lifetime, which is time. So there's only 24 hours in a day. There's only 60 minutes in an hour. Um, there's only seven days in a week. So time is the most finite thing you can have. It's the only thing you can't buy. Um, I, I remember a quote uh, from Warren Buffett that said, when he was asked about this, he said um, that um, the, the thing he takes care of is time more than any other investment because that's the only commodity you can't buy. So when we look at time, you've got to be understand that when you've lost time as well in a production department or a facilities department, it's gone forever. Yeah, you cannot make that up. Gone. So what you do, you have to spend more time. If you're in production, you have to spend more time making that tonnage that you missed. So that becomes an on-cost because that costs money either in resources, raw materials, or labour. And labour is another one that I've been banging on for the past 10 years that you, we're going to have to look at labour very, very critically because it's disappearing. So this is uh, worldwide. It's not just in um, Europe or in J Japan-led. Uh, it's not... You know, people think, oh, well, um, say China has missed it because they've got such a large population. Their large population is probably one of the old, getting to be the oldest populations in the world. Yep. So yep. the working population is shrinking at the same time that commodity prices are expanding. Um, so these three constraints, or what I call the three finites, are very important. And if you look at facilities management, or in operations management anywhere, you have to be able to balance them. There's a conundrum. The conundrum is if you add more labor, if you can get it, it costs you more money. Mm -hmm. So your the money spigot has to be opened to feed more money in. Um, then again, you can't do anything about the time. So you, you, the time is fixed. And this actually, the, the idea for that actually came around from I had a connection on LinkedIn who was ex-forces, who was coming out of... Um, the Royal Engineers, and he was a uh, so he worked um, for a couple of decades in servicing helicopter 
helicopters and stuff like that, a Chinook group um, down in Australia. And he said, well, I'm going to move into civilian work. How do I get my head around? Because his constraint wasn't particularly money or labour because he had plenty of people in uniform to do his work. And, yep. uh, it, you know, if in some cases, if they asked for more money, they just got it. I just spent it and, you know, it didn't really, they weren't serving a client, a customer really. So uh, I actually drew this thing out on a napkin and I put in three vertical lines on the on the graph and one was time, one was money, one was labour with up arrows. And I said, you've got to find a sweet spot on here where you spend uh, enough time, uh, spend enough time, enough labour, enough money to keep your plant on the, uh, on a level where you're probably underneath 2% unplanned downtime. Whatever your measure is that you say is world-class, um, if you spend, the dichotomy is people think if you spend more on maintenance, you get better reliability. If anything, it's the, it's the converse. People who spend more on maintenance usually have got worse reliability. And this is where the conundrum comes in, that it's a, it's a bitter pill that I have to serve to some people where I say, guess what, what you're doing is wrong. You need to do less plan maintenance, do more proactive, predictive, do more on your lubrication front, that will drive down your your unplanned downtime and drive your time against cost down. Um, and the labour bit always used to be that bit that, well, obviously, the more PMs you do, the more labour you have to put into it, and it's always available. We've got a shrinking, not just shrinking labour force, but we've got shrinking skills levels now. So, that's been going on for two decades in the UK, um, and um, it's accelerating in other, in other places. I mean, it's now getting to the point where it's not just the skilled trades, well, say, not just the skilled trades within production environments, but things like people who can drive a, um, a heavy goods vehicle, a truck, or uh, people can actually pick, pick pumpkins. Is a, we, we do, we do uh, celebrate in the UK um, Halloween, and I saw the other day, there's a lady who's got a massive pumpkin farm. She can't get people to cut pumpkins and bring them out of the field. So, yeah, it, it's one of those things that you have to you have to you have to know where you are. Um, it's a fine it's a fine balancing act. It's hard to do, and it takes a lot of effort to make sure. And right now, I don't know about you guys. I know we are experiencing labor shortages, supply chain management challenges, uh, and there seems never to be enough time. <laughs> and so yeah. it is, it's hard to do. Uh, and, and having a good strategy around that, I think, like you said, is it's, it's critical. It's really critical. Um, I love that three and finites. Um, one of the things you said in the article also is about measurement and maintenance expenditures. And I know that um, this is a big topic for us. And, and, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about how uh, uptime helps FMs in the situation when it comes to, in measurement uh, yeah. of, of these type of expenditures. Yeah, so if, if people go to that, if they can go and find that uh, the maintenance conundrum article I did, or uh, you'll see there there's this this graph, and it was actually taken from the bit that I drew on the napkin, and uh, and, the, and the vertical of the graph was um, percentage of unplanned downtime. So it was a it was a 0 to 10% scale. And there's been lots and lots of studies. Lots of them were done in America probably 30, 40 years ago. That said, where how can we get a measure of how much we should spend as a maintenance function on our asset group? And it, there's a sweet spot around uh, 1.8 to 2.5% of capital asset replacement value. 
So the way I explain in the article is you, if you buy a car, so I you know, I'll buy a car for $20,000, brand new car, and um, when I'm sitting there around signing the papers, the guy said, oh, by the way, you have to spend $2,000 a year on maintaining that. <laughs> and I obviously don't want to sign that. No. Uh, so, so 10, 10% is unacceptable to maintain a car year on year, but 1.5% or 2% is acceptable. So if you said, well, it's $200, I said, well, that's okay, that's acceptable. That's 2%. So we do the same in asset management. We have, I've seen it where you'll go in and they say, well, we if we do this measure, we, we spend about 6% of our total cost. So, you know, you've got a 10 million pound plan and can, you know, six figure sums on our total maintenance budget. But when you take a deep dive into that, they're fooling themselves because all the people do, they massage figures and they take out like, the small bits. Yep. Like the 15 minute loss there, the 30 minute loss there, the one that didn't get reported, and they, they make a gray area. So you have to be very truthful with yourself and say, well, there's 60 minutes in an hour. Uh, and sometimes those figures can be 10%. So there you get, you know, a million dollars a plant, and it's costing you $100,000 a year to maintain it when it comes to labor and resources and spares and, you know, external people you, you bring in. So Doing it on asset replacement value, some people say that's not very good because it doesn't apply to all industries. Well, I say, well, you find a better one and we'll go with that because I haven't seen a better one that says do it on the replacement value, like the insurance replacement value of your plant, and then drive towards a figure of less than 2%. And we got, well, I can be open with this, we got to figures of less than 1% over that five-year journey. And we were at double figures wow. in year one. So. I I I don't have to I don't have to try and sell a theory. I'm selling what was a fact. And the the key thing we did when we started, we made a model and we never changed it. Mm. We made we made a measure and we never fooled ourselves. We made a measure that we never ever tried to cut the corners off. Uh, and that that drove that figure um, along that time scale. I love that. And you know what? I saw that article on. I will put that in the notes of the yeah, show so people can check that out. Yeah. Um, and we're we're pretty much we're out of time. We're to wrap up. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It goes really that's fast, good. man. I, I love great. all the information that you're bringing to us. It's so cool. I personally learned so much about FM uh, since I started the show. We've been doing about three years, and, and it's amazing how much uh, information is out there, and really how much people have to offer in this in this industry. Um, I wanted to ask you, as we are wrapping up here, if you had one piece of advice that you would give to FMs across the, the world, we're international here, is, uh, what, what would your advice be today? Uh, well, at the moment, um, look after your people is key. Look outside of your operation. So it's often you'll find, you'll find the answer to your questions outside of where you operate. So uh, um, I've, I've experienced this. I came out of food. I went and worked in automotive and in water and in gas network. And the solutions to some of their problems came from the food industry where I my experience came from. So they but they'd never they never had the time to look outside. Yeah. So I would yeah. say if you can get somebody, my, my main selling point when I go and speak to people and go and help people out is that I can bring all this information together. And if I haven't got the solution, I probably know somebody that has within another sphere. So yeah. Love it. Great advice especially now. And like you said, you know, FM is about people and, and being able to take care of your team and uh, do what's right with them and spend time with them and help them uh, and bring great 
resources in, uh, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, from outside to like, like uptime is, is critical to really, really kind of fine tune things. That's amazing, man. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was really You're cool. Uh, we'll definitely have to follow up and, uh, and yeah. get you back on again for as a repeat, because there's so much more to cover. And, uh, if for those who are looking to, to find uptime, what's the best way for them to, to connect with you, Andy? Now, most people find me through either through the website at uh, uptimeconsultant or one word .co.uk. So it's a UK website, but I do have international clients. Um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. I'm on there every day, and we also have a company page that I'm. I'm I make sure I'm active on the company page. So look for uptime, uptime consultant. Look for Andy Gailey, and uh, yeah, you'll find me there. All right, Andy. Thank you so much for everyone who is out there listening on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to subscribe and uh, hey, leave us a question and we'd love to hear from you guys. And then um, everyone who's watching us there on YouTube, hit subscribe. And then don't forget to hit the bell for notifications so you can get uh, new videos, uh, you know, know when they come out. So thank you, Andy, so much for being on the show. It's a, a well, pleasure to have you. And uh, for everyone else out there, thank you so much for supporting the show. Everyone at the team uh, is very excited to be able to bring this content to you guys. And, and uh, we'll do it again soon. Thank you so much. 